We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my hill, holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall clash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you shall perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Thank you, Drew, for that reading. I've heard it said you really can't read Psalm 1 without reading Psalm 2. They're so intricately connected to one another. Uh, If you read the end of Psalm 1, how the... The unrighteous will not stand. The wicked will not stand with the righteous. And that is so true, is it not? In the day of God's judgment, they will not stand. I invite you to turn this evening to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me get myself organized here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we'll pick up in our study. We're we're almost to the end, and I've yet to decide where we'll go next, but uh, we are headed that way. 
1 Timothy chapter 6. You may remember that last time we began this section looking at the destructive and self-serving motivations that underlie false teaching. We identified two, two destructive and self-serving motivations in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. The false teachers were driven by pride, arrogance, as well as greed, the love of money. And these two motivation, motivations, amongst others probably, but primarily these two, motivated them to teach false doctrine and to desert the truth. Paul then exhorts generally all believers to not follow down that path. You may not be a false teacher. That's good. Praise the Lord for that. But, but you ought not to have the characterizations either of false teachers. You ought not to be motivated to, any, to do anything uh, for God's glory by pride or out of a love for money. We gave a number of illustrations. Again, you know, you may not be a false teacher nor a minister of God, but pride and the love of money may keep you from attending church, may keep you from fellowshipping with those who do believe sound doctrine, may cause you to cause division in the church by your character and pride, like the false teachers were doing, creating divisions arguments, envy, strife, we, not, we should not be characterized in that way like the false teachers were. Remember what Paul says, too, at the end of this section in verses 3 through 10. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And that is, that is why godliness with contentment is of such value. Because when we recognize there's nothing we've brought into this world and there's nothing we can carry out of it, then material greed kind of diminishes in its importance and its value. Instead, we are to learn to be content with even the basic necessities. Food, clothing, are you content with those things? I pray we are or would be if God were ever to diminish us to that state of only having that which we have in our body and parcel of food to put in our mouth. Paul ends in verse 10 by saying, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Out of a love for money springs a, 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 a wellspring of evil. Not positively, but, you know, when we think of a wellspring, but all kinds of evil, and for which some, Paul says, have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through many sorrows. And then Paul picks up here in verses 11 through 16, and we're not even going to get to the end of verse 16 this evening, but he picks up there by drawing now this contrast between the false teachers and that which they're characterized by, their motivations, in the kind of character that Timothy is to be known by in his ministry in personal life. 
And even more broadly speaking, what Paul is laying out here in verses 11, 6, 11 through 16 is a call to persevere. A call to persevere. And this is in contrast to those who have strayed from the faith in verse 10. You see that connection? And in contrast to those who have strayed from the faith by, these, by their greediness and destructive, self-serving motivations, Timothy is called to persevere. And in verses 11 through 16, we learn this, that persevering includes fleeing destructive, self-serving motivations and pursuing that which sanctifies instead. Look with me at verses 11 to 16. We'll read those and then look at it in more detail. Paul writes now, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What an amazing doxology we see there, Paul writing concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and our, our Father, our Holy God. But we begin by looking at verses 11 and 12, which will be the primary focus this evening. As, again, we said, verses 11 through 16 is a call to persevere, particularly when it, in regard to Timothy. But generally, it applies to all of us as believers and this call to perseverance, as I said earlier, is this, that persevering includes fleeing destructive, self-serving motivations and pursuing that which sanctifies. That is what perseverance is. It's, it's, it's sanctifying. It's living a sanctified life demonstrating that you are persevering in the faith. You are a born-again believer. You are called by God. The word but here at the beginning of verse 11 is an adversative meant to contrast the conduct of the false teachers with that of Timothy. And although not named, the you here in verse 11 refers to Timothy. It is to him that the letter is being written, is it not? And so it makes sense that that's who Paul is now specifically speaking to here. And although this means that the following instructions are particularly directed to Timothy, they generally, as I said just a moment ago, apply to all believers. If it's good enough for Timothy, then it's, well, it's even better for us, is it not? More important for us to heed. Paul refers to Timothy as a man of 
God. Maybe you were unaware, I wasn't aware, that the expression man of God occurs 68 times in the Septuagint. It is used as a title for Moses, Deuteronomy 33.1, and in Joshua 14.6, and 1 Chronicles 23.14. David also is called a man of God. Think about that for a moment. Amidst all of David's mistakes, sin, failures, a man of God, he's called. The prophets as well were... Uh, often referred to as men of God or, you know, a specific one being called a man of God. We see this in 1 Samuel 9, verse 6, as well as in six, uh, 2 Kings 13. There's actually, I think, uh, a prophet there, but he's not called a prophet. It just says a man of God came and he spoke, he gave a word, and I believe that refers to a prophet which God sent. Elijah is called a man of God. Elisha, his follower, and also, interestingly, an angel in Judges chapter 13 is called a man of God. In calling Timothy then a man of God, Timothy is being recognized as a true servant of God, much like David, much like Moses a servant of God, much like the Old Testament prophets. Paul is drawing then this comparison of Timothy being recognized as a true servant, like the Old Testament prophets and others who followed and served God. As such, then, Timothy stands in contrast to the false teachers who were like the false prophets of the Old Testament and even though the title is used here in Scripture in a usually a technical sense to refer to a divinely ordained servant or minister of God, like in the Old Testament and here in regard to Timothy, all believers are to act as men or women of God. Are we not? We are, in fact, God's people. We are called his children, a chosen people a royal priesthood? If that is the case, then we are to emulate that in our character. Be known as a man or woman of God in all that we do. And as we look into the text this evening, I want you to notice the four key imperatives Paul gives to Timothy, but again are applicable to all of us. Are we not all called to persevere? Truly, we are. And here are the four imperatives. I'm going to give them to you at the beginning here, and then you can track along as we look at the text. First of the four is this. We are to flee. We'll expound on what we are to flee in a moment. Secondly, we are called in our call to perseverance to pursue something. Thirdly, we are called to fight. And fourthly, we are called to lay hold. Now, we need to understand exactly how these imperatives are fleshed out. What things are we to flee? What things are we to pursue? Uh, what are we to be fighting against or for or whatever? 
Finally, what are we to lay hold of? And the text tells us it's not ambiguous. It's here for us to read and understand. And first, Paul implores and commands Timothy in his call to persevere to flee that which ruins and destroys. He says, flee these things. The word flee means to move quickly from a point or areas in order to avoid some presumed danger or difficulty. Flee it. Move yourself away. Avoid it. Because there's danger lurking just around the corner or ahead. What things was Timothy to flee? Paul simply says these things. Well, the immediate context tells us that at the least, Timothy is to to flee the desire to be rich and all the accompanying evils that come with that. Remember what Paul has just written in verses 3 through 10. These things, then, we could say generally uh, refer to the pride that motivated the false teachers and the greed that motivated them as well that led to all kinds of evils. Remember, verse 10 says, us, says so. And these evils were that which were very costly, we looked at last time. Paul says these kinds of evils, and specifically the desire to be rich, leads one to many temptations, leads them to a snare, leads them into foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, or ruin and destruction. Paul is therefore probably not limiting to just the motivations of pride or greed when he says flee these things, but also all the accompanying destructive and self-serving motivations of the false teachers. Such temptations, snares, and lusts Timothy was to avoid. Such behavior is not acceptable, especially for those in ministry, but for all believers in general, whether in their personal life or ministry, Timothy was to avoid and flee these things. And as I said earlier, just a moment ago, if, if Timothy called a man of God is instructed to flee these things, is it that, isn't it that much more important that we heed this command in a call to persevere? And while pride and greed may be specific sins that Christian ministers must flee, all believers have temptations that they, too, must flee. Snares, lusts, harmful and foolish lusts, Paul calls them, that all of us encounter, not just ministers. So, in way of application, what things do you flee? Not what things will you flee, as if it's a thing to put off till tomorrow. What things do you flee? I presume that if you acted in the flesh, there are certain temptations, snares, foolish and harmful lusts 
that you more easily give into. And it is those things, and all, really, that we are to flee in our call to persevere. Reminds me of what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Those are the kinds of things that Timothy, and by extension all believers, are to flee. Flee these kinds of sins and the temptations that give way to these kinds of sins. And instead, we'll get to in a moment, they are to behave differently. They are to pursue something, or we might say walk in a certain manner. But I'm getting ahead of myself here in the moment. Later on, Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2.22. But the command to flee is, again, not just for Christian ministers. This is the calling of every believer. Paul, for instance, calls the believers in Corinth to flee immorality and idolatry, 1 Corinthians 6.18 and 1 Corinthians 10.14, respectively. Paul uses other language like put to death and put off. They're not the same word as flee, but they they carry the same idea, the same meaning. We see this kind of language in Colossians. I want to read that because I think it is intricately connected to this idea of fleeing. Colossians chapter 3. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to eight. Let me get, begin in verse uh, 1. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death... Again, I think carries the same idea of flee, though, again, not the same word. He says, put to death your members which are on earth, or those things which cause you to sin in your flesh. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, verse 8 in Colossians 3, but now you yourselves are to put off or flee all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Stop there and there in Colossians 3. But I think the idea is similar here, where Paul is saying, put off, flee these things in your call to persevere. Although flee 
in Scripture is often used in the metaphorical sense to avoid a situation, to get yourself out of a situation altogether. Sometimes the best course of action is to literally remove yourself from the situation. My mind in my study of this automatically went to Genesis 39, where Joseph fled. He literally fled the situation, the circumstance, because he wanted to avoid not just the temptation, but the appearance of evil. And so sometimes the best way to flee is to literally move out of the situation, turn the device off, walk away, do something else, remove yourself from a conversation, whatever it requires you to do. But there's not just the negative imperative to flee that Paul notes here in regards to the call for Christians to persevere, but there's a positive imperative as well. He says, flee these things and pursue, pursue. The word pursue means to do something with intense effort and with definite purpose or goal. When you pursue something, you have an aim, a goal in mind. You're not just wandering aimless, aimlessly. You're pursuing something. There's something in your, in your mind's eye or in your literal, literal eye that you're aiming toward. You're seeking to accomplish a goal you're seeking to reach. It means to do, do it with effort, to strive towards something. Not only are we called to flee temptations, snares, and lusts, but we are to be actively pursuing godly conduct. We are to pursue, I have in my notes here, that which sanctifies as a mark of perseverance. It's not enough to say that I am not walking in the flesh. That's a start to not be walking in the flesh. But as a Christian, you are to be walking in the Spirit. Going back to Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh are, and we read them, lists of sins. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, but you are to walk in the Spirit. And the the fruit of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, much like the virtues that Paul lays out here that we'll look at here in just a moment. And so it's not enough to say that I'm not walking in the flesh. In other words, it's not enough to say I'm just fleeing something. That's important. That's integral. But we're to move on in our maturity to pursue that which sanctifies as a mark of our perseverance. We are to... Pursue, Paul says, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. The word pursue could be used to describe the whole Christian life, could it not? In one sense. This command, then, in that sense, is nothing spectacular or peculiar to the Christian life. We are every day called to, with intense effort, strive toward right conduct, that is, righteousness and godliness, 
Christian virtues such as faith and love, as Paul lays out here, and a godly demeanor that is patience and gentleness. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to pursue hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, love, and 1 Corinthians 14, 1, goodness, 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, and those things which make for peace, Paul tells us to pursue in Romans 13, 9. In other words, it's a call to persevere in the Christian life. That is what we are called to do when we pursue these things. And this call is made even clearer in verse 12, wherein we find Paul's third imperative, third and fourth, but just starting with the third one here. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. To fight means to struggle, to contend, to engage in a contest. Paul often in Scripture uses athletic imagery to describe the believer's struggle against the world outwardly and the flesh within us. Ephesians 6.12 Paul uses the word to describe his life and ministry in 2 Timothy 4.7 where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. There is a question here, though, in verse 12, of whether Paul is referring to the fight in regard to Timothy's ministry, or is Paul referring to the, the call to fight in regard to his personal Christian life, personal perseverance? Is it his ministry that he's to fight the good fight of faith, or is it his personal faith, his personal walk with the Lord, that Timothy is called to fight the good fight of faith? I say it's probably not one or the other. It's both. Becky knows where we're going, where Paul is going. Timothy's personal perseverance in his Christian faith is intricately tied to his ministry. I mean, look at the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. None of those have to do with his ministry experience or skills, except for one caveat, the ability to teach. The rest have to do with his personal conduct, his personal walk, his Christian faith, his personal faith in Christ. One commentator puts it this way, for the life and the work of the minister are inextricably bound together. You can't untie them because his personal life affects the ministry. And the way he conducts himself in ministry is a reflection of his personal life. But you know what? It's not so different for believers. That is generally all believers. You may not be standing in a position of leadership in the church, but it's not so different for all believers. We are not only to contend for the faith on Sundays or Wednesdays or Saturday mornings, for that matter. Our Christian life is inextricably bound to every area of life and ministry. Whether it's serving in the church on Sunday, 
whether it's being a mother or a father on Monday, or a coworker or an employee, whether it's holding some office of government as a Christian, you're not just a Christian on Sunday. You're not just contending on Sundays and Wednesdays. You're a Christian dad, or you're a Christian mother, or you're a Christian employee, or a Christian government official, fill in the blank. Your Christian life and your call to contend for the faith, to struggle, to fight the good fight of faith, affects and is inextricably bound to every area of life. And so much like the minister, in that you cannot divide the two, the personal and the ministry, neither can believers in general untie or unbound you know, and compartmentalize areas of life in which we are to contend. If you are struggling then to contend or fight the good fight of faith on Sundays, but not Mondays, then, my friends, you're missing the bigger picture here of what it means to persevere in the faith. The Christian life is most definitely not a passive thing. It is a battle. It is a very active thing you should be doing every day of the week. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I'm not sure that I'm contending, struggling. In fact, things are kind of easy. Let me warn you, if you're in that state, that maybe there are things that you are forgetting to flee. And you've become complacent in the things which you are to flee, you're, you're comfortable with. And that is causing you to not fight the good fight of faith. In other words, if you're merely coasting in the Christian life, you are in danger. You may be, in fact, be going backwards while having a false sense that you are indeed going forward, pursuing. Flee whatever is causing you to coast and fight the good fight of faith. Paul then transitions to a fourth imperative, and we're only going to begin to look at uh, the very, very top layer of it, if I can put it in that way. Paul says here in the middle of verse 12, lay hold on eternal life to which you were call, also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The fourth imperative then is very much so reminiscent of the third. That is this, that we are to lay hold of eternal life, much like we are to fight the good fight of faith. The word lay hold means to make it your own, to really grab a hold of something, to not let go of it. The NASB, or the, the NASB, I think conveys the idea well of the responsibility that we hold. It says, take hold, grab at it, take hold of it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Every born-again believer is called to eternal life. And the proper response of every believer 
to the prior act of God calling you to salvation is to seize a hold of or take hold of or lay a hold of eternal life. And that's very important. I want to note you to note the, the past tense here in verse 12. He says, to which you were also called. That was a prior act that God did. And so don't get yourself confused or let someone else get confused when they say, or when they look at this verse and they say, lay hold on eternal life. That sounds like works-based salvation. No. Paul says this is something you're to be doing and it's in light of a prior act that's already taken place in your life. God has called you to salvation. And because of that, then, you are to lay hold on eternal life. So the idea is not that eternal life can somehow, in our own manpower, be seized some other way than through faith in Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. Get that out of your mind, or get it out of someone else's mind, if that's what they're thinking when they read this. Salvation has always been, and only ever will be, of faith in Christ, or by faith in Christ. This command is not for the unbeliever. That's the important kind of caveat here. This command is for the believer, the one who has already been called. So it cannot refer to meriting salvation or eternal life or laying hold of it some other way than by faith. Rather, it is a call to persevere specifically in regard to Timothy and his life and ministry. And like Timothy, then, we are to seize hold of eternal life to which we were called. It's, it's another way of saying persevere in the faith. Don't let go of it. Hold fast to it. Because every born-again believer will persevere. And that is why Paul can put this in an imperative way. Lay hold of it, because you will. You will persevere in the faith if you are truly born again. And we'll look a little bit more about you know, what that means to lay hold of eternal life specifically. But one last thing I want to say before we close is Paul is going to then lay out in the rest of these verses, through verse 16, four reasons why Timothy must lay hold of eternal life. We'll look at those next time, Lord willing. But let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, as we close, may we follow intently with great effort and stride toward fleeing those things, Lord, which are unbecoming, unbefitting of a believer, certainly unbefitting of a minister, but likewise all the more unbefitting of all believers. Lord, let us flee or put to death to lay aside, Lord, those things which are destructive and self-serving that are only pleasing and pleasuring the flesh instead of pleasing and pleasuring you, Lord. Lord, help us to not only flee those things, to avoid them, but to then pursue, to mature in those things which sanctify us so that we may be confident, and Lord, it may be evident 
to others that we are persevering. We haven't given up. We have not strayed from the faith. But we're walking in the Spirit. Lord, may that be our our aim, our goal, our effort tomorrow morning and every day of this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.